Dear friends, since we are speaking in this little series on the two greatest places in the universe, namely heaven and hell, it behooves us to address the God of heaven and hell as well as this world. Shall we pray? O God, we thank Thee that we may call Thee our Father. We know we were born the children of the devil and are adopted into Thy family only by grace. And as in this series we address the future world theme, that awesome place called hell, and that awesomely wonderful place called heaven, we invoke the presence of thy Spirit, who has given us thy word concerning the destiny which awaits us at death, and pray that he may dwell in the hearts of each of us and hover over the company of all of us, that we may not only learn from thy word, about these future abodes, but by his presence and power feel something of the reality of them. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The first of our three brief lectures will be concerning hell, and the concluding three concerning heaven. And you'll probably notice as we pursue the themes that there is a kind of balance between aspects in hell and aspects in heaven of an absolutely opposite kind, but corresponding nevertheless. All of you have copies of the outline we will be following in the presentation as I elaborate it, and I note at the outset that these comments with which I agree are drawn from Jonathan Edwards' writing and preaching, specifically from the last book I wrote about him, entitled Jonathan Edwards, A Mini-Theology. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, in anybody's book, is one of the great Christian theologians of all time, and probably, as far as describing in sermonic power and with theological precision and detail, is probably the greatest Christian theologian of the future that awaits all of mankind. He's noted, of course, as the preacher of sinners in the hands of an angry God, and his sermons on hell are indeed awesome. But he probably preached more about heaven and just as eloquently and what is more important as biblically. I put this little phrase with which I agree, not that I've mentioned myself in the same breath with Edwards, but just to let you know that though we are focusing on his teaching, I do believe them myself. And I I don't think there's a single sentence here which isn't true to Edwards and which also reflects my own viewpoint. 
much of my own thinking, having been arrived at long before I began any serious study of uh, Jonathan Edwards. But the refinement of it and the penetration of it, owing greatly to his profound influence in his writing on my life and thought for the last 40 years. I always have the question when I deal with these two themes, which to take first, heaven or hell? And there's a tendency, of course, to take heaven first. We usually, when we're talking about this double destiny, mention heaven and hell. The reason I've chosen to speak on hell first is because, really, we all are born into this world in hell, not in heaven. We were created in our first parents in heaven, as it were, but because of the fall, we are born dead in trespasses and sin. We are D-O-A, dead on arrival, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, we are dead in trespasses and sin by nature. We actually are. There are really only three basic differences between hell in this world and hell in the world to come. One of them is that in this world, God forbears to pour out his full wrath upon us. If anyone in this audience here or will ever later see the videotape, is an unconverted person, let him know from the Word of God the wrath of God is now upon him. As Edwards would say, brimstone is scattered all over his life and everything he does. The only difference is that in hell it's poured out with unmitigated fury, whereas now, as Paul says in Romans 2, 4, the forbearance of God from the full visitation of deserved wrath, gives us an opportunity to be saved. Another difference between the hell into which we are born as fallen creatures and the hell which we will certainly go if we die impenitent is the fact that in this world we have diversion. We can think about something else. We can enjoy a good meal, we can like athletics, we can read books, we can have innumerable forms of pleasure, even though the wrath of God is upon us, and hell awaits us at any moment, and these constitute diversions so effective that most people never think about hell. They're so preoccupied with living with the diversions in this temporary hell in which they now are. The third and perhaps the most significant difference between the hell in which everyone is born in this world and the hell to which he or she goes, he dies without faith, is the fact that now is the day of salvation. The opportunity to believe and be saved is before everyone here, everyone in the world. As soon as death comes, 
and hell takes us as its possession, no possible escape ever. We talk about maximum prisons. We try to incarcerate some of our hardest criminals in jails from which they can never escape and are never completely successful, but in this prison, there will be no escape. Once a person goes to hell, it's wrath and nothing but wrath. There is nothing, one moment that will divert your attention from it and escape totally and eternally impossible. The first point I want to make about hell that we're talking about here is that and I attempted something of a definition, and as I remind you, I'm following basically the Edwardsian thought with which I concur myself. Hell is a spiritual and material furnace of fire where its victims are eternally tortured in their minds and in their bodies by God, the devils, and damned humans, including themselves. In a certain sense... They're even tortured by the spirits in heaven. Not directly, but as we'll notice as we go through this study, as they contemplate the blessedness of the redeemed, that, of course, makes them suffer by comparison all the greater anguish so that you can say, in a sense, hell is a place where people are tortured eternally by every rational being in the universe, by every denizen of hell, by every devil, by the angels in heaven, by the saints in heaven, by God himself. And what is perhaps most poignantly sad, even by themselves. Their memories and consciences as well as their raging, unsatisfied lusts torture them. As I mentioned a moment ago, they do have diversions in this world. Don't forget, my friends, any unconverted person is fundamentally a miserable individual. He's an unhappy person, but he is able to take his mind off it by the various anesthesias of this life which we call diversion or fun. It's an interesting thing to mention that in Orlando, one of the centers of our entertainment and diversion. And one thinks of literally thousands and thousands of people who, unfortunately, allow a perfectly legitimate diversion to take their mind off primary business, namely the escape from the wrath of God and the eternal torment which certainly awaits them. But the realization of that in the world to come, that opportunity passed, those sins committed, that conscience violated, contributes the inner burning of the person himself to his recollections of the past. Every evidence that the desires which we now have continue in the world to come and are actually augmented because we will exist in a state superior to our present state 
whether it be in hell or heaven, capable of enjoying, for example, the delights of this world in the world to come where there's nothing but actual misery and the torture, all the keener because our sensitivities all the brighter. Conscience is never extinguished, for example. Conscience, which sometimes stops a person in his or her tracks of sin in this present world, works overtime. In hell, there's no diminution of its inner torment. There's every evidence that it would be more activated than ever in a world where nothing but sin and its frustrations prevail. One of the... This thing happened on the way down today. Uh, I learned something about evangelism I'd never thought of. But when I was on my plane from Philadelphia to Orlando, at one time I was reading this outline, thinking about my own comments to you right now. And of course, the black boy sitting alongside of me uh, couldn't help seeing it. I wasn't rubbing it in his nose exactly, and I wasn't putting it in his face, but for me to see it, he had to see it since he wasn't reading anything else at all. He found himself reading this and uh, said nothing for about 10 or 15 minutes. And uh, then he said to me, uh, that number two, <laughs> he says, their memories and consciences as well as their raging unsatisfied lusts torture them. He asked me to explain that somewhat to him, and I did there with quite a dozen other people listening in carefully, so you're not exactly the first audience uh, uh, for this. I may say this incidentally, apropos the evangelical evangelistic aspect of it, I may suggest uh, uh, holding up something like this in a plane is an extremely, some of you I nod like this as if you've been doing this for the last 20 years and so on, but at 73 I just smartened up a little bit to a, a way of uh, communicating a message without saying anything far more effective than anything I could say. But the, the fellow did go on to say to me that he was a Christian and uh, at the same time he said, uh, I haven't got my act together. And he was alluding to some problems in his life, and I was able to press on a little bit. I'd incidentally turned over to hell and heaven so that he saw I wasn't uh, uh, just deliberately holding this up for his benefit, and he could believe me when I told him that I had six lectures to give tonight in Orlando and such things as that. But uh, when he started to talk about not having his life uh, put together quite, I sensed that that was something of an understatement of the real predicament, and I was able to say to him, my friend, it isn't enough to consider yourself a Christian. He considered himself a Christian. Your life has to be put together. You'll never achieve perfection in this life. But I, I said to him, if you happen to be a Hindu or a Muslim or a Sikh or something like that, you would know you're not a Christian. But Sometimes people think they're Christians when they aren't Christians at all. And I tried to give a little mini uh, evangelistic um, uh, witness to him at that time, to which he listened very politely. We had a very cordial uh, relationship, and I 
try to tell him to seek the Lord while he could be found. Number three, in hell, the place of death, God's saving grace, mercy, and pity are gone forever, never for a moment to return. It's a rather odd thing that in the history of this particular doctrine, in the early church, a theory developed that once, I forget the number of years, but something like once out of every hundred thousand years or something, the denizens of hell were allowed to be freed from their torture. That's absolute fiction, but nevertheless it's odd that, that people, as it were, just can't live with the idea of the relentless, ceasingless nature of this torment without a moment's rest ever in all of eternity, but that is actually the picture that the Bible gives. One of the hardest things for people to understand is the fact that God says, I will even laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes on like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come on you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they shall not find me. And then in Proverbs, the first chapter goes on to explain why God is so merciless at this time and actually mocks them out in their misery and laughs at their calamity. This is God's word which says this, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. It's an interesting thing about this uh, fourth point here. Figuratively speaking, the wrath of God is a consuming fire, says Edwards. Of course, that's an expression in the Bible, you remember, about God. Dives, or the rich man, in torment spiritually, even before the resurrection of his body, was described as existing in fire, begging to have Lazarus wet his tongue to relieve the pain, Luke 16, 24. I think what that means is that even though the hearers of Jesus, when he told that story of Dives and Lazarus, must have thought of the rich man who had died and gone to hell in a disembodied state, and Lazarus, who had died and gone to heaven in a disembodied state, so that it would seem strange in a sense that Dives in his misery is asking to have water put on his tongue to relieve his seemingly physical anguish before, while his body's in the grave and before the resurrection has taken place. This is Gerstner now, not Edwards, but my, uh, he doesn't say this, but I think the reason is that the torment, even in the soul, is so thorough and so complete that it actually would express itself in feeling. Or maybe Christ is just simply uh, referring to the ultimate hell after the resurrection, when the bodies are actually united with the souls. But nevertheless, whatever it is, the thoroughness of the torment is poignantly and painfully indicated there. The Number five. The metaphor points to the all-over prevalence of the anguish and its intolerable severity. Divine wrath will be far more terrible than its symbol. Consuming fire, in other words, is what we would today call a massive understatement. 
But the symbol is also, very probably, says Edwards, literal. Actually, the furnace is figurative so far as the soul is concerned, literal as it pertains to the body. Now, there's nothing at all impossible about its being literal. And Christ's words in Matthew 10:28 require it. Matthew 10:28 actually says, Don't be afraid of him who can kill the body. Fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. John Calvin, commenting on Matthew 10:28, says, That text makes your hair stand on end. It's a frightening, beyond words, indication that no matter what kind of torture you could be subjected to in this life, it ought not to bear a moment's comparison to the reality of judgment in hell for those who, for fear of suffering in this world, deny Christ and deny uh, conscience. Number seven, it takes real fire to burn the heavens and earth in the great conflagration, which is hell. I'll focus on that a little bit later. But there is to be this great conflagration, and certainly fire is the main symbol indicating the hell which is to come. And what Edwards is saying here, however terrible it may be, as far as the soul is concerned, it is equally and literally so with respect to the body. You may not realize this about Edwards or even about heaven and hell, but Edwards would stress the fact, and it's absolutely a verity, that suffering in the soul is far more terrible than anything in the body. There's a real sense in which the only way you suffer is in the soul, even when it's through the body. Many people seem to be relieved if you tell them there's not going to be any literal fire. No actual furnace or something, only spiritual misery. But that spiritual misery would be even more terrible. And in a certain sense, the consuming fiery furnace, which destroys the resurrection body forever, would be almost a kind of relief from the misery to which the soul in its eternal snake pit is actually subjected. Number eight, God will be the hell of one and the heaven of the other. But here I'm calling your attention especially to this. The most horrible thing about hell. In the thinking of Jonathan Edwards, John Gersher, and the Bible, it seems to me clearly, is not the absence of God, but the presence of God. Those of you who read much contemporary theology are probably aware of the fact that the theologians turn themselves inside out to escape this idea and try to make hell exclusively the absence of God, as if that were some kind of blessing. And it is a blessing in comparison to the presence of God. I don't know what Bob... uh, uh, Ingram was saying to you earlier, but the greatest authority on Jonathan Edwards, I once asked up at Yale uh, Bonnicky Library, Tom, I said, for Jonathan Edwards, what's the greatest horror of hell? And you know what he said? The absence of God. That is the best scholar Jonathan Edwards has ever had. 
I said, when we go back to Barnaby, I want to show you a few passages from some unpublished manuscripts of Edwards. He looked at them, and he said, you're right. For Jonathan Edwards, hell's most frightful horror is the presence of God. We'll see later that it's the presence of God that makes heaven's greatest delight. Number nine. It is because God is the fire which burns in hell that words can never convey, much less exaggerate, the terrors of the damned. Who can know the power of his anger, asked the psalmist. Edwards took this to be a rhetorical question. The law and the gospel, both. He insisted, agree that God intends an extraordinary manifestation of his terribleness, something beyond anything we can ever imagine. So let me go on to read this last point before I develop that a little bit more. If this be so, that no one can know the power of God's anger if he actually rises up in his might to display it, if this be so, it was inevitable that Edwards would assuredly advise, let not the sinner imagine that these things are bugbears. Future punishment is contrary neither to Scripture nor reason. In fact, it is most reasonable to suppose it. He gives five arguments to prove that ministers have not set it out beyond what it really is. He then concludes confidently, if I, therefore, have described this misery beyond the truth, then the Scriptures have done this same. Now, that might seem to you like a very arrogant statement, even though Edwards is the greatest theologian America has ever had. Incidentally, I may say, uh, perhaps the best book I've ever read on Edwards has just come out in 1988 by a man named Robert Jensen, teaches theology at Gettysburg Lutheran Seminary in Pennsylvania, and it's entitled, most appropriately, America's Theologian. And he shows in 200 pages what I've given up trying to show in 2,000 pages, that Edwards is really the father of the American church, the American theologian. If there's anything for which he's criticized, if there's anything for which the people at Yale are, by their editing, publishing as many of his works as they can, hesitant about, it's because of his reputation as a hellfire preacher. Here he is saying, it's impossible for him or anyone else to exaggerate hell. He fell on his face trying to explain it. He probably had more success than anybody I know of in the history of the Christian church, but he was infinitely far short of the verity. And when he goes on to make this statement of he is exaggerated and scripture has exaggerated, I rise to his defense again. It may sound an arrogant statement for a person, Edwards or anybody else, to identify his interpretation with the infallible words of Holy Scripture. But on the other hand, if Scripture does make this plain, and if God, who is the supreme teacher, intends not to hide, but to reveal himself, to make himself known, then manifestly he can do so. 
And if he can and will do so, persons of ordinary mind, not to mention the greatest genius America has ever had, can see that. And I think in the light of the evidence, which is overpowering and irresistible, even if you haven't read Jonathan Edwards, and I just about defy anybody to read the corpus of Edwards' work and have any doubt about it, all he is doing is telling you what Scripture is saying very clearly and with the infallible inspired authority of Almighty God. I don't think Edwards has begun to tell you, and I know I can't begin to tell you, how terrible hell actually is. We take up now the second in our brief lectures on the awesome doctrine of hell, and you have the paper given out from which I would like to develop these points, which are uh, developed in the writings and sermons of uh, Jonathan Edwards, as I mentioned to you before, but which I personally also believe to be biblical truth. The opening statements here have to do with the great conflagration that makes the transition from this world to hell in the uh, next world, and then the latter ones deal with a theme that's very little understood or discussed uh, in our time, namely the degrees of sin and punishment in hell. But let's look, first of all, at number one. Immediately, the quotations you remember, unless they're biblical ones in which a text will follow, are from some work or another of Jonathan Edwards. Immediately, upon the finishing the judgment and the pronouncing that sentence of judgment will come the end of the world. Edwards has a great deal to say about the day of judgment. I have only this much to mention at this particular time. There is a private judgment for each one of us at the moment of death, and that is, of course, the time at which our location in the world to come is determined. It pointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And if we die impenitent, we go in a disembodied state. Edwards' usual way of referring to that was in a separated state, separated a soul from a body. And there, uh, in hell, we undergo the torments of the damned in the soul or spirit alone. But part of the torment of hell at that particular time is the realization that at a later time in God's providence, that body of yours, which may have been in the grave for centuries, is going to be raised, and as hideous as your defiled and foul soul is, be joined with that soul to undergo the torments of eternal damnation in body and soul forever. Now, that's what Edwards is talking about here, the day of judgment, which immediately follows in his uh, theology on the, day, uh, the return of Christ, does mark the beginning of the end of the world once the verdict about its inhabitants, living and dead, is actually rendered. Then the frame of this world shall be dissolved. He said, number two, the pronouncing of that sentence will probably be followed with amazing thunders that shall rend the heaven 
and shake the earth out of its place. Second Peter 3.10. He's occupied with that in his preaching and in his other writings considerably because, in his opinion, that is probably the fullest indication of the way in which this world, in which we now live, will come to an end. People living uh, uh, two and a quarter centuries after Edwards, who died in 1758, and are familiar with nuclear explosions and realize what man can do to this cosmos with his own uh, inventions and so on, can't help but think that that fervent heat which marks the end of this uh, world as such could very well be brought about by ourselves. Edwards doesn't speculate upon anything like that, but he antedated the nuclear age by a century and a half or so and could hardly have imagined how powerful man is in his own self-destruction. And this is Gerstner now, not uh, Ed, uh, Edwards, but I can't help but think what a appropriate irony it would be to allow the sheer natural gifts of a sinful mankind to be the instrument for its own destruction by a divine appointment. But one thing is certain, whatever role we may or may not play in the end of our own uh, cosmos, there will be, judging from Second Peter 3.10, a collision of the stars and various bodies of this world that will create one massive uh, burning that would, according to Edwards' speculation, he was a great speculative theologian. Those of you who are familiar with the history of uh, doctrine, I may say, as an aside, he's famous, of course, as a Calvinist, and he's agreed, essentially, with the Calvinistic uh, theology. The fundamental difference between Jonathan Edwards and a man such as John Calvin is that Calvin was a lawyer and good at putting together a brief which comprehended the, uh, all the relevant data, in this case, of Scripture. Edwards was more of a philosopher. Well, a professor at the University of Michigan says he's probably the greatest philosophical defender of Calvinism that it's ever had. But he tends to probe very deeply, whether it be a theological concept or whether it be a, a geographical or meteorological concepts such as this. When the gallery of his church uh, fell at one time in his ministry in Northampton, Massachusetts, you should see the detail with which he describes the way each joint came apart and how it fell in such and such a way and what a marvelous providence it was on God's part that no one was actually killed in that accident. But that detail, here again, a little bit of Edwardsiana, if you don't uh, mind. Many people have... Uh, uh, recognized Edwards' genius, in possibly in science, certainly in philosophy, and regret a great deal that he ever turned away from science, in which he wrote a great deal in the beginning of his uh, life, or a philosophy, which occupied him. And many people, like Perry Miller, for example, the late Perry Miller, who got this whole avalanche of Edwardsian studies going among people who are not Edwardsians uh, by nature, Miller almost cried when Edwards went into the ministry and spent most of his time wasting most of his time on the Bible and so on. Those of us who believe the Bible to be the Word of God are absolutely jubilant that whatever genius he may have had in philosophy or science, that that genius was given to an intensive study of the Word of God all his uh, life. And for me, 
I have never read in anybody in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul a deeper understanding of the Bible. But I'm just mentioning here this characteristic of the man as a whole that he... I just wrote a preface to a book of Jeremiah Burroughs on the uh, uh, Beatitudes, and I couldn't help but say Burroughs, B-U-R-R-O-U-G-H, Burroughs, B-U-R-R-O-W-A. He does... You count 15 points under one text and such things as that, you see. Well, Edwards Burroughs, deep, profound, very characteristic of him. And if you had time, you could read a very full volume describing the geological and uh, astronomical and, uh, and meteorological effects which are to follow at the end of the world. But one thing is certain, as far as Edwards understands the Bible... This is the beginning of the end of this uh, world here. Number Then shall the sea and the waves roar, and the rocks shall be thrown down, and there shall be a universal wreck of this frame of the world. And tis probable, he says, that this earth, after the conflagration, shall be the place of the damned. I said, miscellany 275, let me explain to the non-initiated... Uh, what miscellany means. The Puritans, which Edwards uh, sometimes called the last, though that's not quite accurate, but uh, the last great Puritan, perhaps, uh, he might be, but they had a habit, many of them, of writing their commonplace books. They just jotted down notes and ideas. And Edwards called his miscellanies, and he'd write in those miscellanies uh, something, be a sentence or two or a paragraph or a book. It prophecies of the Messiah as a full book. And many of them were very, very lengthy and very, very detailed. He has, this may surprise some of you, but he has a, a detailed defense of the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, mind you, in the, in the early part of the 18th century when it was just beginning to be suspect. He was quite alert to what was going on in that area, but he'd write in the missile. He started out A, B, C, D, and then he got up to Z, and then he started A, A, and then he went to Z, Z, and then he realized he better shift the numbers, and he went into numbers up to 1,365 or something like that. And much of that has been published. A great deal has not been published. And this man I mentioned a moment ago is working on that, and if Yale uh, does a proper service to Jonathan Evans, they'll publish everything that he ever wrote in this, which would make a good eight volumes. The sad thing about the Yale University Press edition of the works of Edwards is that they cost about $60 each. Uh, there is the old uh, edition of Edwards in two volumes, a small print and so on, that you can get through Banner of Truth for about $60. They're not critical, they're not modern, but they cover almost everything in Edwards in print. And I consider that the greatest literary bargain under heaven, and if you haven't bought such a set yet and want me to buy it for you, I'll get it for you if you promise to read it in one year. I've circulated about a hundred of those around the, the world, but if there's anybody here who can't afford that $60, you see me, and uh, I'll see to it that you get it as long as you make that promise. One lady who made the promise said to me at another church in Pennsylvania, I'm not able to finish this in a year, Dr. Gerster. What can you do about it? You made the vow to God, not to me. That's your business. You have to cope with him. Another fellow at a seminary out in Chicago sent me a check back for what he thought I paid for him and so on. Because I, this is between you and God. I sent him a check back. If you make it, it's got to be a vow. I'll see that you get the two volumes. But if you can afford it, get each one of the Yale University Press volumes that's coming out. Very learned. 
And very interesting because of the fact that if you're all as evangelical as I hope you are, academically, this is the most evangelical thing going on at the present time. I don't know anything you could pray for more fervently as far as the gospel reaching academia is concerned. The Perry Miller, as I mentioned a moment ago, died a moment ago, a hard-swearing, hard-drinking, hard-pagan at, uh, at Harvard University. He was absolutely fascinated by Jonathan Edwards. And he was a charming person, a pleasing pagan, and so on. He's positively certain if Jonathan Edwards was right, he'd go to the place we're talking about here. And yet he was so fascinated uh, by the person, he just couldn't put a Christopher Hill has the same sort of feeling for, at Oxford has the same sort of feeling for William Perkins. It's an interesting thing. What I'm trying to say very hastily here, because it's a little beside my ten point, and so on, is the fact that if academia is going to be reached, you'd be surprised how it could very well be an early 17th century or an 18th century theologian who will be the instrument for it. Because these scholars do admire the scholastic competence of these people, even while they hope to God they're wrong, which you know, and I know at least, is not the case. Number uh, uh, four there four is a quote from miscellany number 200. And uh, 75. I don't think it can prove that the earth is going, the center of the earth is going to be hell, but you could see it could be, and Edwards thinks it's even probable, and you could see the appropriateness of it would be the return of the criminals to the seat of the crimes that they were committed to be because of what they were and what they thought and what they did in this world that they would be going to hell. You could see in a certain sense there wouldn't be any place more appropriate for, uh, and I thought that as I was coming down in a plane today. You could theoretically let us sinners be actually suspended in space through all eternity, but most of our sins are on the ground. We are ground creatures, and we live in this world, and we're condemned if we are condemned to hell because of what we've done in this world, and then we know full well it is hot down there, and we know that this collision, which is going to take place, will only intensify the heat incredibly, so you can see that when Edward speculates on something like this, it's never made out of whole claw, and he's usually very careful to draw a distinction between his speculation and something which is indubitably and exegetically required by Holy Scripture. Number five, we begin our discussion of the uh, degrees of sin and punishment in, the hell, in hell, which uh, figures uh, very largely in uh, Edwards's uh, thinking, but it's a uh, common uh, tradition as well, though largely and commonly forgotten today. Number five, the definitive treatment on degrees of punishment is found in the sermon on Matthew 5.22. Edwards' title is that the punishment and misery of wicked men in another world will be in proportion to the sin that they are guilty of. Now, he goes into, a, in, into an explanation uh, uh, of that. He makes it perfectly clear what everybody who believes in the biblical doctrine of hell uh, makes clear, too. Namely, that everyone in hell is perfectly miserable. There's no relief from it ever, and you are as miserable as you're capable of being made miserable in hell. That is a, that's standard doctrine. If anybody believes in hell, that's a part of his thinking of it. It is also standard doctrine, but not realized as such that there, that misery can be augmented, and in a certain sense, by avoiding certain things, could be diminished in this world. Get what I'm trying to say is that according to any doctrine of hell, 
the persons who are there are full of pain and torture, body and soul. They, their capacity is exhausted that way. But they can have greater or lesser capacity, is what we're saying. They're going to be filled to the brim, but the vessel could be larger or uh, smaller, as the case may be, as he explains now in number six. All men that persons, this means, of course, partake equally of original sin, but do not partake equally of actual sins. I think you know, uh, most of you, uh, what uh, the difference between original and actual sins. Actual sins are the sins of thought, word, and deed, which we actually do. But they originate from a corruption of the heart. Original sin doesn't mean the first sin. It means that corruption, sometimes called concupiscence, from which all actual sins originate. And what Edwards is saying here is that all of us who are born into this world partake equally of original sin. We are born dead in trespasses and sins, every one of us, as we come into this world. I want to time to slip this little remark in. Uh, one time I was uh, asked if I would, uh, since I was supplying a church that day, if I would baptize one of the children in the congregation. And uh, since they had no pastor, and I said I'd be glad to, and the elder who asked me said, uh, uh, do you mind using a white carnation? And I minded using a white carnation, but I didn't say that. I said to him, what is the meaning of the white uh, carnation? And you Baptists here can understand what an interesting predicament this would be for a pedo-baptist uh, here. But I said to this particular man, I said, uh, what is the meaning of the white carnation? And he said, well, it shows the innocence of the child. Well, I said, what is the meaning of the water? Well, he says, it shows the washing away of. And he couldn't get any further in that sentence because he recognized the absurdity of having a symbol showing that your child was innocent and devoid of sin to apply that which was a symbol of the washing away of sin. So he didn't press me any further. But a minister later on, when he heard me tell that story, he says, if I ever have Gershner baptize any of our infants, I'll supply him with a black carnation. But infants are born with a dead, sinful heart. And that's where Baptists and pedo-Baptists join together, even though they separate on the matter of the infant uh, infant baptism. So they're the same as far as original sin is concerned. But everyone in this world is absolutely different as far as the type and the degrees of the actual sins. Now, number seven reads, man has merited by one sinful act the eternal ruin of soul and body. One act brings anybody to hell. Now, that's Jonathan Edwards, but that's not just Jonathan Edwards. You look at the shorter catechism, it has it. Luther said the same thing. This is standard doctrine. Edwards goes into more of a rationale on the matter and develops a whole concept that sin is determined by the obligation to the contrary. You have a greater obligation to your parents than you would to somebody else. Though the same slander or disrespect to a parent to whom you hold consummate respect is a far more serious sin 
than a disrespect for your employer or someone else. It's a sin, but you obviously owe more to your parents than anyone else. And manifestly, if we recognize that in our ordinary relationships among mankind, anybody would realize that God is infinitely excellent, and a sin of, against him bears absolutely no comparison. The sin against any creature Indeed, it involves us in an infinite obligation. That's the reason for the statement here, that one sinful act deserves the eternal ruin of soul and body. And I'm stressing with you especially here that though Edward says that, this is standard. There's nothing uniquely Edwardsian about it. Number eight, the score is proportionately increased in God's debt book. Although he that commits one act of sin, say profanity, a breaking of the Sabbath, an intemperate act, etc., deserves capital punishment. Now, what you really have, you see, in hell is millions of capital punishments. Here today, in our time, as uh, not so in Edwards' 18th century and so on, we fight to preserve capital punishment for an absolutely indescribable act of murder. And what Scripture is teaching us if these theologians be correct, is that the slightest sin deserves eternal damnation. Every offense, thought, word, or deed, brings infinite judgment, brings nothing but hell. Number nine, by a second act, assuming it was no worse, he now deserves twice so hot a place in hell fire. The second act of drunkenness heats hell a great deal more than the first. Heinousness of sins is next described and weighed, aggravations considered, and finally the influence or prestige of the sinner put into the balance. What he means there by the influence and prestige of the sinner is this. I'm a 73-year-old ordained minister who for, as Bob said at the beginning of this series, 30 years taught the Bob Ingrams of my classes, or helped to teach them to become ministers. Now, manifestly, you and I, say the youngest uh, person here in the audience, and least experienced Christian, does exactly the same sin I do. Manifestly, that same sin is far more grievous in me than it would be in that person. Why? Because I have had so much more opportunity, I have so much more obligation, I have so much less excuse that you could easily say I could do a sin ten times less serious than that person's and be ten times more grave than that person's sin would be. And these are all factors in which the gravity or heinousness of a sin is determined. And as Jonathan Edwards is saying, all of it goes in to the matter of punishment in hell. Consequently, number 10, the damned in hell would be ready to give the world if they could to have the number of their sins to have been one less. I may say the first book I wrote on Edwards was entitled Steps to Salvation, and it was reviewed by Charles Braden. Some of you may know the name. He wrote a book on They Also Believe. He was quite a liberal scholar from Texas. He wrote this book review of uh, Steps to Salvation for Christian Century magazine. 
And he, uh, he indicated it was a clear statement of Edwards' uh, thinking and so on. But uh, this statement, which I had there, that really set him off. He had long ago put out the fires of hell. He was much too sophisticated to waste uh, a couple hours here tonight listening to uh, three lectures on hell. How stupid could Gersta be to think that that's a relevant subject? That had long ago been put out of his liberal mind. And then the, he knew it hadn't been out of Edwards' mind. But even he was shook up when he read this statement here. The damned in hell would be ready to give the world, if they could, to have the number of their sins to have been one less. Boy, that got Braden. He lost his cool on that one altogether. But nevertheless, it's absolutely true. If every sin is going to be brought into judgment, every idle word is going to be brought into judgment, two idle words, twice the judgment, and when he makes a statement, the second sin is worse than the first, you realize what he means by that. Obviously, you're getting harder. Your conscience has been bothering you the first time you did it. Now you're riding over your conscience the second time. You're obviously getting more set in your sinful way. And the third and the fourth time is going to be more terrible. It's still the same deed. But it gets worse all the time. And as I say, it varies with the individual who does it and so on. And since most people, I've met and dealt with people who are so unbelieving about hell that they would say, uh, I don't believe in it, but one thing is certain, if I'm going to go to hell, I'm going to go to hell, period. Even those who do believe in it. I've had people look me in the face and say, I'm going to hell. I'd like to have checked them out therapeutically. I had a psychiatrist examine them to see if they knew what they were talking about, but I've had people actually say that uh, to me. But more commonly... I have had people who do believe in hell and also believe that they are addicted to their particular sins, whatever it may be, and are more or less grimly and cynically and, uh, and uh, fatally giving themselves over to an inevitable damnation or something like that, nevertheless comfort themselves with the thought, well, they're going to go to hell, period. And I remind them they are not going to go to hell, period. They're going to go to hell if they go to hell at all with every one of those statements added up. With every moment of pro uh, procrastination, every moment of resistance to the will of God, every moment of violating their conscience and so on, so that the time is going to come or they perish. They would give the world and everything besides to make the number of our sins one less. You see, here again, Edwards is very interesting when he's talking with his people there. Remember, this is the finest mind America has ever had. Perry Miller, whom I quoted a moment ago, and Paul Ramsey of Harvard, still, I mean, of uh, Princeton, still living, have both made the same statement. That if Edwards had written nothing except his inquiry concerning the freedom of the will, that alone would establish him, and I'm quoting now, as the greatest philosopher, theologian ever to grace the American scene. That's the opinion of uh, the late Miller and the living but retired uh, Princeton University professor Paul Ramsey, who edited that particular work. But you see, if there's anything frightening to those people at Northampton and the Indians to whom he later ministered at uh, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, uh, than something else in Edwards, it's when he would sort of stop in the middle of a sermon. I may say he stood tall in usually a, a Geneva robe, and he'd wear a wig, and, 
and such things as that. And someone was once asked if he was a um, good preacher, an eloquent preacher. And the answer was, it depends on what you mean by eloquent. If you mean interesting and so on, no, hopelessly dull. If you mean the, the, the substance of his message, the most powerful preacher I have ever heard. Well, if there's anything ever frightened those Northampton people, it would be when he would, uh, every now and then, he'd put down his, man his manuscript, incidentally, would be about that size. We have most all of them up at uh, the Bonnicky Library in Yale. His handwriting is really quite legible. The ink is well prepared. This man I've referred to, he could tell you from the striations in the paper what the date of that song was. He lived with it for the last 40 years. But anyway, Edwards would just stand up there doing exactly what his predecessor, ancestor, uh, Solomon Stoddard, told him not to do. No wig, no reading of <coughs> manuscript and everything. But uh, he had his wig, and he'd read those, ser those sermons. Every now and then, apparently, he'd put the sermon down. And he'd say something like this. There are some of you here who don't believe this is the Word of God, so let me try to prove it to you independently of the Word of God. Then he'd go into analysis of the inevitability of hell, the absolute justice of it, the fact that it can't conceivably be denied, and you can imagine them slinking down in their pews at the thought they could escape it any particular way. But this is perhaps the most awesome feature of uh, the degrees of judgment that Edwards brings to our attention when he says, Sinner in hell would give the world and all beside if he could to get the number of his sins one less. We take up now the third and last of our brief lectures on the terrible but true doctrine of hell. And we find Edward's Again, referring to the famous parable of Dives, you know it's just a Latin word for rich man, and Lazarus. May I remind you that uh, Edwards never believed that all rich people went to hell and all poor people go to heaven. Now, what happens in this particular episode that our Lord mentions, the rich man did go to hell, and he had other relatives who were going to be accompanying him, and the poor man did go to heaven, but I may say... Uh, uh, it's not relevant to hell directly, but nevertheless it is relevant to Christian theology. Edwards addresses questions like that. He's very up-to-date in points like that and makes it very clear that the rich man who goes to hell goes to hell not because he's rich, but because he's trusting in his riches. Just as he'll point out that the Pharisee who goes to hell is not because he's righteous, but because of the righteous tithing or whatever he does, he's trusting in as making himself acceptable to God. Uh, those of you who are uh, aware of contemporary debates and New Testament theology and so on will know what I mean. And uh, you would almost think that Edwards had read some of the literature that has come out in the 20th uh, century. He does speak to but the parable talks about a rich man who goes to hell and a poor man who goes uh, to heaven, says Edwards, though not to be taken literally, we need not suppose that there ever was actually such a conversation, that is between Abraham and uh, Dives, justifies the doctrine that hell remembers the world. See, this is a thing, uh, again, I think you realize it's a dual course in heaven and hell and in Jonathan Edwards as the expositor of uh, the doctrine, 
Here you're faced with a, a description which our Lord uses, and any reader has to ask himself the question whether this is an actual uh, poor man named Lazarus and an actual rich man outside of whose gate he lay, miserable. No, says Edwards, well, what does it mean if it is not to be taken uh, historically? Uh, what does it mean? Christ isn't telling us without intending to communicate something uh, to us. Uh, he says it very clearly refers to the future. It's talking about what happens to people after they die. And it does justify this, he goes on to say, that hell remembers the world. It remembers its own past. It's no longer in this world, but whether the world still goes on, as is the case before the ultimate day of judgment, or uh, not, the world is remembered. And what persons did do is part of the sword that cuts their heart all the time. He goes on to say, number two, they will remember the bottle of liquor. Now, I may say this is not meant as an indictment. In those days, they were not opposed to moderate drinking. Edwards would drink wine and all, but uh, this is just meant to uh, refer to a pleasure which a particular person in hell enjoyed quite legitimately. In uh, this world, he might very well have been a member of Edwards' own church. He warned his people constantly that many of them gave every evidence of being unconverted. And if unconverted, they would most certainly perish. And he'd despair at times. You, you won't listen to me. You won't pay attention to me. God is going to have to take you in hand. One of the descriptions he gives that uh, would particularly have... Um, tormented the citizens of Northampton was his statement in one of his sermons that their former pastor, who was a kind of uh, pope of western Massachusetts, a very patriarchal figure whom they admired and loved very much, would be repudiating them and denouncing them from heaven while they were actually in hell. He was very explicit. All the Puritans were about it. Many of these people, I may say, were fully aware of the fact that they were on their way to perdition. Here again, if I can insert this one point of evangelism here, because in a certain sense that concerns every one of us here, the evangelism of Edwards and the evangelism of uh, the Puritans generally, and I think the evangelism of the Bible doesn't appeal primarily to people to believe because they don't have it in their hearts to believe. They're dead in trespasses and sins. What they need is to be born again. And since you can't make yourself over again, evangelism appeals, as I would appeal to you right now, literally and realistically. If any of you are converted, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But it's not in your heart, if you're an unregenerate person, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you want to know that. What you need for real faith is to be born again. So what Edwards would be preaching to them and what I'm preaching to you now, incidentally, I'm not just lecturing now, I'm as an evangelist speaking to you now, is ask the Lord to change your heart. And the people, as I say, in Northampton, many of them would recognize they were not converted. And what they needed most of all 
was to be born again. And that was entirely in God's sovereign hands. But they were to do what they were to do, but that would take a lecture on evangelism to explain all that actually is. But they will remember in hell the bottle of liquor they enjoyed so much. Friends they enjoyed so much. Comfortable dwelling, habitation. How they were a great deal better off than many of the godly. That would have particularly tickled them. Edwards, was, uh, Edwards' predecessor was fairly well-to-do, one of the wealthier people in the community. Uh, Edwards was nowhere nearly as well-off, so he husbanded his resources quite well, and so on. But uh, many others were downright poor, and some of the people who didn't claim to be born again, nevertheless, they rather got a satisfaction out of thinking I may not be so well situated for the future, but I'm certainly much better off in the present. Well, they'll remember that, and they'll be sorry they ever said or thought such a thing as that. Three, they will remember how they were warned that if they once got into hell, they should never get out. I don't suppose there's anything in all of the hell preaching of Edwards that he stressed more than that. It's forever. Now's the day of salvation. He has a powerful sermon of them. Boast not yourself of tomorrow. You don't know that you have a tomorrow. One of his most magnificent statements is this. When it comes time to die, the only thing you should have to do is die. I was passing that over my mind the other day, and I was thinking of three or four things that I ought to get done. And here I am down at Ocean City, and my home is 300 miles away. But these are things that I ought to get done, because I could die while I'm lecturing to you now. Or you could be carried out, some of you one-fifth of my age, before the lecture is actually over. You know that. I know that. Well, we're to live in such a way that when it comes time to die, and that may be tomorrow, it may be today, and so on, there's nothing left to do but die. I love that statement, and I feel uh, convicted uh, uh, by it. They will remember how they were warned that they would never get out. Now, he points out that hell also looks to the future, and its misery is augmented by the forward look as well as by the backward look. There's no place you can be in hell or look away from hell without it contributing to your misery, is what Edwards is saying. At the hell sight of the blessedness of heaven will increase the hellishness of hell. And also, uh, number four, at the day of judgment, the wicked shall see others glorified. The lost will see the redeemed floating to Christ from every region of the earth, among them those whom the wicked had despised in this world. See, these, they all know that. You have to remember the devils of a highly literate theologian and the denizens of hell or frequently very well-instructed Puritans who hadn't actually been uh, born again. And they would realize that time was coming when this separation would take place and the, those in Christ would be acknowledged and exalted and would actually be taken to heaven bodily. And then the day comes when they actually see people whom they despise in this world floating from all corners of the earth to uh, Jesus Christ to be with him forever while they were left as the goats on Christ's left hand to be dismissed to the hell of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He's fully aware of the fact, and I don't know how you can escape it from reading the Bible, 
that hell will be aware of heaven, and heaven will be aware of hell, just as we've said in the Dives Lazarus uh, episode. But right now we're just noticing the fact that that will be part of the torments of hell, to see those people whom you despise indescribably happy. Why, you are indescribably terrible. I said nothing that will in any way relieve people in hell, a place where it hurts even to smile. You might think they get some satisfaction. They see some supposedly righteous person in Northampton come to hell. If Edwards himself went there, you could just think they would be breaking out in jubilant joy, but nobody in hell has any pleasure about anything. There's no way of any relief whatsoever. As a matter of fact, what does happen is when they see people whom they despise, and usually they do despise through Christians, and so on, floating, blessedly, up to Christ, that will augment their horror all the more. Now, in this next section, we look at uh, Edwards annihilates the belief in total annihilation. He does a thorough job on that, as we'll see, and I think it's important for us to realize that, because this is the only escape people really intellectually offer to the doctrine of hell. I read about a no-hell church where hell had never been preached for 20 years. I remember a gathering of modern intelligentsia where someone, I don't know whether it was Paul Tillich or whom, but somebody in that company, there's not going to be any hell around here. And as I say, when uh, Braden read my, my book, this idea of uh, giving the world an all beside to make the number of your sins one less, that's absolutely out of our area of uh, thought. But they don't have any substitute. They just hope that they will cease to be. Annihilation. Uh, uh, Bob, uh, I don't know whether you were in the course of the cults that I taught in the seminary, and you were, but you remember the Jehovah's Witnesses and all the others of them begin really with a doctrine of annihilation. Pastor Russell, who established the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, uh, lived on the north side of Pittsburgh, not very far from where the seminary was located at one time, and he used on Saturday nights to go around at Allegheny area, writing on, the, on fences and so on, billboards and everything, warning people about hell. And somehow or other, somebody relieved his mind, and he became persuaded there was no hell. And then the great thrust, which gave birth, really, to the Jehovah's Witnesses, was the idea of annihilation. God wouldn't do that to a dog, says uh, Russell, as he begins the witnesses. Uh, and the same thing is true, basically, of the Mormons, the Christian scientists. You name any group which calls itself Christian, which is basically sectarian or cultish, and I think I can guarantee you, at least I have never encountered one, which doesn't count on annihilation, which doesn't hope that hell will not actu uh, uh, be, or that if it is, that it's temporary, very, very temporary, just to show God's displeasure and then extinguish the person's existence. Now, apparently that was a problem in those days of far greater orthodoxy. You have to remember Edwards died in the middle of the 18th century, and while heresy was beginning to creep in in earnest in those days, it was, a, it was then a, a storm the size of a man's fist. Today it's an absolute hurricane with which you Floridians are so familiar and so on. It's just all over the Christian scene. But in those days, orthodoxy was still prevailing 
to a considerable extent. Edwards, incidentally, was uh, very much concerned with the new divinity which was uh, coming in. And this may account for why he uh, focuses so sharply on annihilation, as if he realizes that the denial of hell is only going to be maintained with any kind of sense or credulity by some sort of defense of annihilation. So notice how he critiques that very uh, concept. He destroys, number seven, the teaching with a battery of arguments. First, the Bible teaches eternal punishment. Wicked men will hereafter earnestly wish to be turned to nothing and forever cease to be that they may escape the wrath of God. See, there's no denying that seriously, that the Bible does teach punishment. When people oppose it, they do so on the ground that God couldn't do this, or God wouldn't do this to a dog, or something like that. They run in the face of the biblical statement, and the fact that God, who ought to know what he's going to do better than people who speculate on what he would do, is going to administer eternal punishment. I have read just about every sermon Edwards has ever written and everything that's published or manuscript form that he's ever written uh, on this uh, particular uh, subject, but I can't uh, ever uh, remember getting any kind of uh, of relief from it. Uh, I've racked my brains, too. This This is the problem. There's no such thing as a problem of evil if it weren't for hell. It doesn't exist. The third evil, the irreducible evil, the unalleviated evil, is hell. And if that were out, and annihilation followed, then every person in the world who, whether he uh, was a sinner or a saint, could be relieved at the thought that torture would not be. But, as I say, everything I've read at Edwards, awesome as it is, doesn't stack up against one statement from Jesus Christ as he talks about those goats on his left hand, they shall go away into endless punishment. That one statement from Jesus Christ means more than all that Jonathan Edwards or John Calvin or Augustine or anybody's ever written or could write. Because when the Son of God says that people are going to go away into endless punishment, you know that's the truth of God. There's absolutely no way of escaping it. Then comes in Edwards and saying, there's no way of exaggerating it. How can I possibly make it out any worse than it is? I can't begin to tell you with any adequacy. And the Bible does. That's the first thing. And as far as Jonathan Edwards is concerned, he'll sometimes give you a battery of six or seven arguments. But he'll say, one text of Scripture, faithfully interpreted, correctly interpreted, that establishes far more than he or any other theologian could ever do. And here he's saying, point number one, the Bible talks about endless punishment. There's no way of escaping it, and there's no doubting of its verity if the Bible's the Word of God and it teaches that. Second, it is clear also that the wicked shall be sensible of the punishment they are under. There are many descriptions of them gnashing their teeth and crying out and surprise and such things as that. Nobody ever gets the picture of hell in the Bible, which is anything other than a place where people feel the torture and the misery without escape uh, forever. And that would, of course, never describe annihilation, which is the only known way by which people hope to escape it. Third, degrees of punishment preclude annihilation. That is, if there are people are punished uh, for every idle word, and if in that text that I referred to, on which Edwards has an unpublished sermon, Matthew 5, 22, 
said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. Whoever kills is in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, if anyone is angry with his brother, he's in danger of the judgment. If anyone says, Waka, he's in danger of the council. If anyone says, Thou fool, he's in danger of the hell of fire. Edwards is describing there the uh, ascending severity of the sins from unjustified anger to slighting a person to actually hating him being associated with an ascending degree of severity of punishment. First described as the, as the, as the judgment, and then the council, then the hell of fire. All of them, however, referring to the hell of fire. Now, how can there be gradations in hell? Obviously, if there's a hell, an eternal hell, there can't be any annihilation. And obviously, even more, if there are gradations in hell, the common fate of all unbelievers, namely annihilation, is utterly out of the question. Fourth, the scripture is very express and abundant in this matter that the eternal punishment is insensible misery and torment and not annihilation. Furthermore, uh, he's saying the abundance of it. Uh, that, if you think that's just a repetition, he's just saying there's so much of it in Scripture. Furthermore, annihilation is no state at all and is therefore inconsistent with man's soul, which is never destroyed. Here again, everybody admits that that's taught in the Bible. And most people who don't even believe the Bible tend to believe there is a soul, and they believe that the soul survives the burial of the body. But whether they do or not, if the Bible teaches that, then manifestly, if the soul is going to live forever, there's no such thing as annihilation. We could live as a soul without being a body, a disembodied, or as he says, a, a separate soul, uh, and so on. But as long as we're going to exist in any state, annihilation is no verity. Sixth, men would never know their judgment if annihilation were their punishment. Instead of God repaying them face to face, they would never have to face God at all. See, God is constantly warning us, constantly threatening us. I had a friend who's more of a statistician than a minister, but he nevertheless, because he was so inclined, when he came to doing a master's thesis, he, he computed how many parts of the Bible were devoted to the judgment and the wrath of God in comparison with the love and the mercy of God. And he marked the, he marked the severity passages in red, and the, uh, I think it was that way around, and the gracious passages in blue. But the end result, and he went from Genesis through Revelation, was that for every reference to the mercy, the love, the forbearance, the kindness of God, there were three references to the wrath and the judgment and the warnings and the threatenings of God. For every promise of blessing, three threats of cursing. When you see that sort of thing in the Bible, it makes you realize immediately, does it not? My dear friends, that there's something wrong with us today. We don't give that impression about the Bible. We act as if the, Bi if the Bible does mention hell. It's something you mention quietly. You don't say very much about it. And one, one blood-curdling experience I had one time, I was preaching on the love of enemies. And in that half-hour sermon, I had one reference. Don't worry about justice being thrown out of whack. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. After the sermon was over... One person said to me, oh, I appreciated that sermon on hell. One sentence. In another case, that same sermon, the same text, I never preached the same sermon, but the same text in another city. A man 
as he went out the line, about 70 years of age, and his face red, and his eyes were bleary with tears, and he said to me, I don't agree with that sermon. I said, what do you mean? You don't think we should love our enemies? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, what do you agree? This idea of yours that God will take vengeance. My idea of mine. The Old Testament. God says it through Moses. Paul quotes Moses and God. God says, vengeance is mine. And lo and behold, it turns into an idea of John Gerstner that he doesn't agree with. And so that's how incredibly sensitive we are to this type of thing. And yet the Bible is emphatic about it. The Bible may not be true of Edwards, but I think you can find that certainly the Bible says more about hell than it says about heaven. It's the significance of my friend's examination. Well, he didn't put it in those terms. I said he just took, put it in terms of statements of God's curse and wrath as over against his love and forbearance. One of the liberal professors under whom I worked at Harvard many years ago, back in the 40s, Henry Joel Cadbury, one of the best professors I ever had there, he pointed out the same thing in Christ. Christ had far more to say about judgment than love. Now, Cadbury would never have agreed with him. But his sternness was there. It's not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament. Not just Moses, it's Christ. It's not just Jonathan Edwards, it's the Bible, in other words, which is saying uh, these things that God is going to come face to face. You're going to be summoned before him, and you're going to give an account to him, and you're going to receive either life or death from him is what the Bible's teaching. Now, that obviously does not spell annihilation. But in the seventh place, wicked men are still alive in hell now, fearing the resurrection of their bodies, as the devils are now dreading the further punishment which is awaiting them. There again, a biblical doctrine about the actual realities. Here, people denying existence of hell, while hell is actually going on at the present time. Again, it could not be said that it was better for the wicked not to have been born if they have no judgment awaiting them. In fact, the righteous generally suffer more in this world than the wicked, which would make the latter's annihilation unfair. But you know, he's referring to Christ's words there. It's better for that person that he was never born. Well, how could it be better for a person if he did his own thing all his life, defied God and everything he thought and did, and at the same time had only to face the cessation of his existence after he had run his liberal, uh, his sinful course. What would be frightening uh, uh, to him in that regard at all? And yet Christ makes it very clear on a number of different occasions. It's better for certain persons if they had never been born. You've heard that from the Greek cynics. But that also comes from our Lord Jesus Christ as well. And he turns the screws a little bit on this one, pointing out that actually in this life, the righteous suffer far more than the wicked, and that would be another uh, instance of unfairness. Not that any righteous person doesn't deserve to suffer in this world, but the fact is he certainly wouldn't deserve it as much as the wicked, who would have none, had less than he, and none at all, at death. Ninth, what is the meaning of a burning furnace, heated to differing degrees, if none were ever to be cast into it? Moreover, if the judgment of God begins in the house of God, as Peter says, it surely will not spare the unrighteous. And if it was done in a green tree, the innocent Christ, what will happen to the dry tree? That is, if even the church is going to be judged, what about the impenitent? 
If even Jesus Christ died, the green tree, what about us who are really ripe uh, for uh, judgment? Finally, how could Christ have had to die for us when no punishment threatened? I don't remember Edwards commenting on that statement in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. But I'm sure he viewed it essentially as John Calvin did. Christ, when he was on the cross, actually endured in his soul the punishment which was the equivalent of hell. He didn't descend to some nether region. Calvin didn't believe there was a nether region to which Christ descended, such as hell, or some waiting room, limbus patrum, or limbus infantum, or something like that. But he suffered the torments of hell on the cross. And Christ is saying here, I mean, uh, Edwards is saying here, how could Christ suffer that if the only thing threatening the wicked was nothing but a kind of reward, namely annihilation? Do you get that point? The reward. I know if there's anybody here who's a practice sinner and has just given himself over to it, your gospel you'd love to hear from my lips is annihilation. My, you would rejoice in that. All this and no hell. Ah, that would be the great gospel for most people. And Christ dies for that type of thing? Incredible, says Edward. And the last two points here are kind of summary. "'Tis the infinite, almighty God himself that shall become the fire of the furnace, exerting his infinite perfections that way. That's a summary, as I said. That's the most important thing that Jonathan Edwards has to say about hell. It's the infinite, almighty God himself that shall become the fire of the furnace, exerting his infinite perfections that way. You see, alongside of that, you can... He'll do that at times. You've probably heard about it. He'll, he'll try to get the people of Northampton to imagine that they've been sentenced to this fiery furnace for 15 minutes. And how they would dread the idea after the first horrible minute. 14 minutes to go! And they keep on going and going and going. Miller used to write about the rhetoric of sensation and how Edwards would say this sort of thing to get people to think mainly. But you see, here's something incredibly more horrible than any kind of furnace could ever be. The fire, indignation, and wrath of a God whose presence you never, ever escape. That is hell. That's according to Jonathan Edwards. Not any fiery furnace, terrible as that may actually be. Hell for Edwards will not be the absence of God, but his presence, his inescapable, wrathful presence. Impenitent sinners will see God face to face forever. That is their hell. As we conclude these three messages on hell, let me beg all of you here, if you are in danger of that place, it's a real danger, and if you are unconverted, it's a moment-by-moment -moment danger for every one of you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Ligonier Ministries offers a free teaching resource catalog listing video and audio tapes, curriculum, and books by R.C. To obtain your copy, call us toll-free at 1-800-435-4343. In Florida, call area code 407-834-1633.